Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to We Gotta Talk, real talk on big topics. This is an issues and news-based podcast where we dig deep on perspectives and big issues in pop culture and society. Today, we are launching what I've sort of unofficially been calling the Row series, essentially a collection of interviews and personal stories that talk about the... um, oh gosh, the many nuanced ways in which the Supreme Court's overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision will uh, change American politics and women's health care and women's lives going forward. The goal here is to provide both information from experts and also perspective in sharing women's stories, uh, why they're pro-life, why they're pro-choice, their abortion stories, why they chose not to get an abortion. There's so, so many angles and perspectives on this topic. And I thought it would be interesting to bring not only an informational perspective, but also uh, the emotional side of the story. So over the next several weeks, you may hear some audio diaries, people's stories, personal stories on why they believe what they believe, how they landed there, and if that's ever changed over time. Today's episode, though, falls under the information category, and I'm so, so excited about today's guest. I'm interviewing Paviel Haynes, who is an assistant professor in the political science department at Rollins College. She specializes in identity politics, race and ethnicity, political behavior, and more. But today she's here to talk about women's health policies and how the overturning of Roe v. Wade can impact women's health care going forward. So we discuss things like IVF, fertility treatments, birth control, difficult pregnancies, all of the things that could be impacted by this ruling and how women's health care can really be impacted in real world ways. The difficult decisions that doctors might have to make in order to uh, treat both the health of the mother and the health of the baby. This is a really big topic, guys. And frankly, I didn't realize how many tentacles to this particular perspective there were until I started talking with her. The implications of this ruling are tremendous. I hope what comes through in this interview is the informational side of it. When Paviel and I talk about um, why people aren't more sort of riled up, it's coming from the perspective of the healthcare world and how regardless of where you stand on this philosophically, this stands to change a lot of how women receive healthcare in the United States. I was blown away at the many implications this ruling could have. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Please know that if you have any thoughts or any feedback, I am always opening open to hearing those. Instagram is usually the best way to reach me at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. And then of course, on the website, wegotatalk.com. Enjoy this episode with Paviel Haynes. So Paviel, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, so tell us to start off your first uh, gut reaction when you heard about the Supreme Court's ruling. Yeah, I mean, I sort of knew it was coming um, when the case Dobbs v. Jackson was heard back uh, last year. Um, you know, it was pretty clear based on the statements that the justices were making at the time that they were either going to roll back Roe v. Wade pretty dramatically or overturn it. Um, and so I knew that, yeah, probably this summer, right, it was going to happen. Um, but nonetheless, even though I sort of knew that this was likely, it was really shocking. And it's um, 
just go, it's going to impact women's lives in the United States so dramatically and in ways that I think haven't even been fully realized yet. Um, yeah, it was shocking. And I still haven't totally gotten over my shock, if I'm honest. Yeah, I was always one of those people that was surprised when people had emotional breakdowns at the result of an election, or I was like, I mean, come on, get over it. And this was something that I felt deeply. Um, I'm not closed off about my stance. We're not here to change people's minds and opinions. I've learned how well that works. But, um, you know, I have to be honest in my approach to this story is that, you know, I think we all come at it from perspective. Um, We were a generation, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm 40 years old, who was raised to believe that the system had in it um, certain protections and certain things that would prevent our healthcare from being impacted. And I do think that regardless of where you stand on the pro-choice versus pro-life issue, it's hard to argue that women's healthcare won't change, like you said, drastically. So hopefully as we as we discuss this, this is coming, guys, from an angle of just practically speaking what you can expect to see, depending, of course, on what state you're in on how your healthcare is carried out by your by your practitioners and providers. So um, we're going to kind of stick to that angle. I, I, there are so many, so many things to consider, Paviel. We've heard talk about how, you know, ectopic pregnancies could be treated from here on out and how the priority might be placed on the health of the baby versus the health and welfare of the mother and who to prioritize first. I would like to, if we could start off by just giving a basic list of some of the things, for example, that that we might see change. Another topic I wanted to bring up was how period tracking and information that we have on our cycles can be accessed by um, by investigators or by the government. So there's so many things. Can you list out for us and then we'll get into each one what things we might see change if we are women in the system? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing you mentioned, ectopic pregnancies, has to do with the treatment of pregnancies that are high risk, uh, that pose a threat to the mother's life. Ectopic pregnancies are one of those situations, but there are a whole myriad of situations where a pregnancy can be risky. And so that's one thing that is going to change dramatically. Doctors are already talking about how many of the laws being passed are vague about what constitutes a threat to the mother's life. Um, And so there may be serious barriers to just standard uh, maternity care. Um, Another area that could be impacted in terms of the public health realm is birth control. Um, And it hasn't come up so much yet, but uh, many of the birth controls that women use Actually, if you say life begins at conception, which is sometimes the argument being made, um, prevent pregnancy from going forward by after conception has occurred, preventing implantation. And so those could come up as potentially abortifacients. It could be made illegal. That's another area that that I think um, you should be concerned about and paying attention to. Outside of public health more generally, You know, I think one of the things that Roe v. Wade did for women is it's not just about um, reproductive freedom or the ability to control your your health choices. That's a big piece of it. But that has wider consequences. um, Right. It allowed women to participate fully in society and in our economy because they could control their reproductive choices. So when you take that freedom away there are very real economic and social consequences for women. And I don't think we should be neglecting those either. That's something that we'll want to talk about as well. 
Yeah, this the uh, ripple effects. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't even think of that. Um, what does this basically do? I, I don't want to be overly broad. And I think um, as we as we do interviews with several experts, we'll see that there, of course, there's a lot of nuance here. Your geographic location will impact your rights and abilities sort of tremendously. Um, but we're speaking to, because I know we're going to get that that argument. People are going to say, well, you're oversimplifying. But I think it's safe to say that most, that at least half of the country's women will see some sort of change to the way that they can access their healthcare. Um, let's dive into the difficult pregnancies category of what could change. You mentioned ectopic pregnancies. You mentioned there's also the issue of uh, parents who have to make the difficult decision to abort when the child is going to have significant health issues or an incredibly decreased lifespan, all of these things. So what are some of the practical, practically speaking, what are some of the options that are available right now to women that might not be down the line? And how is this all coming together to happen? Right. So one of the major issues with pregnancy from a public health perspective, from a political perspective, is that very often women are just fine in the first trimester or even second trimester sometimes of pregnancy. They they may have underlying issues that doctors pick up on and they say, hey, if this pregnancy goes forward, her life is going to be at serious risk. The question though becomes, well, if she's fine now, but two or three months from now she won't be, could we proceed with an abortion? From a doctor's perspective, could they do that? Or would they be legally culpable for performing an abortion since her life at that particular moment wasn't in imminent danger? Even ectopic pregnancy, right? When we think about that, um, usually it's discovered right around now because of medical advances, six to eight weeks. Um, and it's as simple as a shot. Uh, women don't even have any symptoms. They take a shot. It ends the pregnancy well before their life is in danger. By the time they get to 11 or 12 weeks, there is a very serious risk of infection and death and loss of fertility. And so the question is, right, from a medical provider's perspective, well, can we give her this shot at eight weeks, even though right now she's fine? Or is it not a serious enough emergency? How sick do we have to let her get before we can provide her life-saving care? Other examples of this would be something like severe um, preeclampsia, which is where a woman's blood pressure rises to very high levels during pregnancy. Um, if you're at 15, 20 weeks and doctors know, hey, um, she's got preeclampsia, we estimate there's a 30 to 50% chance that if we let this go to term, she'll die. Well, then from a legal perspective, is a 30 to 50% chance enough of a risk to allow for an abortion? Or would a doctor who performed that abortion end up being sued um, or, or punished? And so mm -hmm. doctors may be unwilling to perform these standard you know, um, practices of medical care. And so it could really affect women's health from that perspective. Maternal death rates absolutely will go up. Um, even in states where they say there's an exception for um, women who are at risk, well, what constitutes risk? Um, that is not clear at all in any of the laws that have been passed. 
What types of protections or um, systems do you think will have to be set up to protect doctors so that they can make decisions that remain in the best interests of their patients? Because what I'm hearing you say is that this may force healthcare providers to make decisions between their career and their patient, which frankly are both very important things. Mm -hmm. um, so are there any is there any movement towards setting up some sort of system? I don't want to say indemnity, but some sort of system in place that allows doctors to act freely and give the advice they would otherwise give were there not some sort of legal restriction on the care they can provide? Yeah, well, I want to back up just a second and say it's not even just their careers that are in jeopardy, right? Some of them, depending on the state they're in, could face jail time, right? It's, it's actually that extreme. So it's not that, oh, they'll lose their license. They could actually go to jail if they perform an abortion and they go to court and the jury and judge don't agree that it was medically necessary. Um, so the risks are actually much higher. And the other thing I want to note is this is already happening. Um, there are stories coming out of Texas where healthcare providers are saying, yeah, she needs an abortion. She she's in kidney failure or she has preeclampsia, but I'm not going to do it because it's too risky. Send her to another state. Um, there have been cases where doctors say, well, she has an ectopic pregnancy, but there's still a heartbeat. Can we abort it? Uh, we have to wait and figure that out. We have to talk to our legal team and there's a delay in care. So these are not hypotheticals that we're, we're thinking about down the line. They're already happening in states with trigger laws where abortion has been restricted, despite the fact that these laws say, you know, the exception is medical necessity. Hmm. So what could be done to give doctors a little more latitude to exercise uh, their judgment, their medical judgment? I mean, it's tricky. I think, I think on some level, a lot of these laws have been crafted intentionally to be vague. And, and the reason for that is, right, if you are a, a legislator, and your goal is to limit as many abortions as possible. You know on some level that you can't think of all the situations in which abortion might occur or could occur. Um, and so you leave it open-ended, you leave it pretty vague, and the idea is that all of that can be figured out down the line. And maybe what will happen is in these states, they will get more clarity about here are here is exactly what constitutes in a, med a medical emergency where abortion could be legally performed. Here is exactly what constitutes um, imminent threat to the life of the mother. That could happen. Um, my sense, though, is that for now, legislatures, state legislatures are pretty happy to leave it vague and open ended. And they say, well, of course, right, in these situations, an abortion could be performed. Um, but it's so subjective. What one may say is fine, another might, might disagree with. Um, so there are legal mechanisms that could be used to protect, protect doctors. I don't see that happening anytime soon. It's got to be awful to be a doctor right now. I mean, already a, a, a career and profession that's just rife with tension and stress and literal life and death decisions every day. And it just seems unfair to throw this into the mix. Yeah, yeah, it's awful for them, um, right? And on some level, right, they're having to adjudicate, do I, do I, you know, violate my patient's trust, violate my Hippocratic oath, or do I follow the law? Um, so I don't envy them at all. 
I am very glad I am not a doctor <laughs> at this time period. And I'm, I'm a political scientist trying to understand what this means for them, but it's got to be exceptionally difficult. Yeah, gosh. Let's talk about um, cycle syncing, um, keeping track of our cycles and mm-hmm. um, the potential for the, I don't want to say theft of that information, but the usage of that information in in a nefarious way. So the concern in the articles that we're seeing go around online right now is that many of us who track our periods in apps, that information, if needed, could be accessed to prove a date of conception, which would then be used in turn by the doctor to determine how far along the woman is and if she can receive what type of health care she can receive. Do you foresee a world where that's happening, where they're tapping into our phones and looking at the last date we had our periods? Absolutely. If you are at all concerned about privacy surrounding your reproductive health, stop using those apps. Um, go to pen and paper for tracking any in, any of that type of information. Um, and I think the real concern is, you know, less about, um, you know, well, when did, when did the doctor perform the abortion or can the doctor perform the abortion, right? Because in some states, right, it's about conception is the moment where life begins. No abortions can happen. Um, I think what's really scary is actually a situation in which a woman has a miscarriage. And for some reason, for whatever reason, this has also happened, uh, the state believes that it was caused by her behavior, uh, drug use, alcohol use, um, unsafe practices, whatever it could be. And they they charge her with, with a homicide. This has absolutely happened in states before. So conceivably, if she is on one of these period apps, they could subpoena the period app get that information and figure out exactly right, as you said, when she conceived um, and and then when the abortion or miscarriage happened. So I think that's scary, but absolutely. Um, and when we think about this, and I, you know, from a, from a legal perspective, the right to an abortion under Roe v. Wade was granted as part of the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy, very specifically, right? Um, it wasn't even a question about, is this unborn um, baby, this fetus, a person or not? That was not part of the original equation in Roe v. Wade. It was about, well, a woman has a right to make medical choices in consultation with her doctor without the state interfering, um, including reproductive choices. Um, But the court has said, no, um, the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy, now does not extend to reproductive health choices. So absolutely, it wouldn't be a stretch to say, well, it also doesn't extend to reproductive health information if the state has a vested interest in investigating a possible abortion. You know, what what struck me in hearing the multitude of interviews and reading the articles I have since this ruling came down is that there appears to be protection for precedents that... Um, protect contraception or protect gay marriage or protect other, what many would term to be personal decisions regarding their relationships and bodies. And I don't know how 
the decision, and I'm not asking this as some sort of like advocate, um, but I'm asking this as a woman in the United States, how is bodily autonomy, how should that not be a constitutionally protected precedent? And I'm not asking you to weigh in legally, but I'm just saying rhetorically, it was a shock Mm -hmm. to me that this, that this could, that this could go through on those terms. Um, Well, shocking. Well, realistically, the overturn of Roe v. Wade and the suggestion that women do not have a right to reproductive privacy, that that is something um, that states can decide for themselves, throws into question all these other things about interracial marriage, also a right to privacy, right? That, that's how that court case was decided. Uh, gay marriage, that's another one. Um, contraception. So all of these things that we now think of as protected because of our right to privacy, because Roe v. Wade has been overturned, all of these other things are up in the air. And in fact, Justice Thomas um, wrote about this, and he said he believes that the court should revisit um, some of these things, and that perhaps it should be up to each individual state to decide what to do on these issues, just as they now have that, that right with Roe v. Wade. I really look forward to digging into this aspect with a constitutional law expert because this baffles. It it, it truly baffles me. And as we said at the beginning of the interview, I I think it's important to note that the things that we're discussing right now are just fact, right? We're just discussing what doctors can and can't do now. So it's, it's, it's just weird to me that this isn't more of a complete outrage to people. But I digress. I want to talk about um, IVF in particular as well. This is another sort of nuanced area of women's health care that we don't know how this is going to impact. Can you walk us through potential scenarios where people seeking fertility treatments um, to get pregnant may see sort of the unintended consequences of this ruling? Absolutely. Um, and there are a few ways that this ruling could impact um you know, assisted fertility treatments. So one thing, first of all, before we even get to IVF itself, there are a lot of drugs that are used um, during assisted fertility treatments or IVF. They're actually abortifacients, um, which is, I know that's kind of funny sounding, but essentially to prepare a woman um, to become pregnant, sometimes they have to take drugs that if they were pregnant at that moment, right, it would end the pregnancy. And so I mentioned earlier that certainly this ruling could throw into question certain the use of certain um, birth control options. It could also throw into question whether or not it's legal to prescribe these abortifacients. Um, so that could be one way in which there could be unintended consequences is that women may not even be able to access the drugs that they need um, for assisted fertility treatment. When we think about IVF specifically, right, The process of IVF involves, um, you know, uh, removing eggs from women's ovaries, putting them in a little Petri dish in a lab, fertilizing them, and then over the course of a few days, you get embryos, actual embryos in this little Petri dish. And so if you're in a state where the law says, essentially, life begins, human life begins at conception, and these embryos have legal rights, then you run into a problem, right? Because you've created, you've had conception, 
And so what do you do with these embryos? Um, and so one thing that could happen is that IVF could, by default, be made illegal because you are creating embryos with legal rights and then freezing them or discarding them. And so I guess it, the idea would be you're taking away their chance at life or you're taking away their life. Another thing that could happen is women who undergo IVF might be told, well, you can do this, but then you have to implant all the embryos. <laughs> and then you end up with the risk of having multiple babies, right? Three, four, five, depending on how many embryos there are. Um, so it's a really, it's a really serious issue for women who are looking to undergo IVF. Um, that may not be as accessible in certain states anymore, particularly the ones where they say no abortion period from the moment of conception onward. That would preclude IVF in most cases. Pavia, uh, there have been multiple surveys taken and they reveal that despite the polarity of this issue, most Americans land on relatively the same page, which is to say they support abortion up to a certain number of weeks within what many other countries deem to be a reasonable amount of time where the, the baby is still relatively young in utero. My question is, from a public policy perspective, if surveys have shown us that the bulk of Americans land on that sort of common sense approach, why hasn't the law caught up? Why is there no nuance in how the law looks at this if Americans are saying, hey, we, we actually pretty much agree on what should be done? This is such a complicated issue um, that I think speaks really directly to the state of our democracy and whether or not we really live in a democracy and how healthy that democracy is at this point, right? Um, there are lots of reasons that this is happening. So first of all, when we think about, well, why would the court rule to overturn Roe v. Wade when the vast majority of Americans support keeping it? What's the deal with that? Well, first of all, right, Supreme Court justices are not elected by design. They're sort of supposed to be insulated from public will. Um, but why then are the, all of these states, I believe it's, you know, close to half and probably by the time everything is said and done, two thirds of state will have pretty strong restrictions on abortion. What's happening there? Why are those elected officials not responding to public opinion? And it comes down to a couple of different things. Um, one is that we live in a society that's very divided between rural and urban areas. So even though more Americans prefer Roe v. Wade, they tend to be concentrated in just a few largely um, cosmopolitan blue states, right? And then we have all of these other much more rural states. Um, they're not as many people, but they do tend to be more conservative. And so at least in some of these, what's happening is the state legislatures there are responding to the public will of the people within that particular state. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, we have sort of states that are purple, kind of, you know, split. And 
essentially what has happened over the last 20 to 30 years is gerrymandering. And this is a situation where largely the Republican Party at this point in history has been doing this, although there have been periods in the past where the Democrats did. But for the past 20 or 30 years, this has been a Republican effort. And essentially what Repu the Republican Party has done is every state is divided up into legislative districts. Each district gets a certain number of representatives for the state legislature, as well as um, the House at the federal level. And they divide these districts up in such a way that right, maybe they give up a couple of districts to a Democrat, but the vast majority of the districts, because of how they've divided them up, are going to go Republican. And they know that even though um, when you look at the composition of the state legislature or the people that they're sending to the House, even though the state has maybe an even split between Democrats and Republicans, there are far more Republicans um, going to these legislative bodies and making these decisions uh, about abortion um, on behalf of their constituents. And so it's a combination of federalism um, and gerrymandering. And, you know, I also will say, I think the Supreme Court at this point, to go back to them, um, they're supposed to be principled. And they are really supposed, and again, I'm not the constitutional law expert, but right, they're supposed to be principled. They're supposed to base decisions on precedent um, and legal grounds. And for them to overturn Roe v. Wade, is pretty unprecedented. I mean, to overturn settled law um, almost never happens. And in the past, when it has, it has been with the goal of expanding mm -hmm. people's rights. So a good example, um, and, and conservatives have made this comparison uh, somewhat proudly, I think, where they say, well, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case in the late 1800s, um, set the separate but equal precedent, right? Um, where people of color and whites had separate facilities. And then in the 60s, the court overturned that with Brown versus Board of Education. They overturned that precedent. And so conservatives say, this is the same thing. It's, but I would argue, well, no, it's not. Because in the case of Brown versus Board, it expanded um, human rights. And in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson, it's limiting human rights. So it is it is shocking that, to me that the court is doing this. And I'm excited to listen to the podcast where you talk to the constitutional law expert, because I'm curious what they have to say, too. Yeah, you're right. It's it's an issue of expanding rights versus contracting or, or taking away. I how do you think the healthcare system responds to this? We already talked about how it's it's probably impossible to predict how doctors individually will respond to, to patient treatment or what decisions they'll make. But it, does this sort of put the onus on healthcare systems now to um, call in the troops, talk about what their guidelines are, or it, it, how does the healthcare system even respond to this as an entity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's essentially what is going to have to happen individual hospitals and practices will have to make hard decisions about what can we do what what will be our protocol 
given the ambiguity of the law. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of, not a lot of hospitals, but some hospitals have religious affiliations. So what might be good advice for women too, not that I'm an expert here, is just really researching what facility you plan on um, getting your maternal care or your reproductive or, or gynecological care at, understanding that the place where you deliver could have some real world impact on what happens should your pregnancy um, you know, should you have a, a challenging issue with your pregnancy? So I feel like if I were pregnant, I would want to know, okay, where I'm delivering could actually impact my life yeah. just as much as the babies. Absolutely. And that's always been the case, right? Um, religious hospitals have always sort of shied away from providing abortions or um, in cases where there was ambiguity about whether or not an abortion was needed due to medical reasons, the, the practice was send women along to another hospital and then they can decide what they want. Um, so that's always been the case, right? If you're pregnant, you should always be aware of, you know, what, what is the affiliation of your provider and the hospital that they use because that can impact your care. Uh, but especially now, it's even more important. And you should ask too, what are your policies? What are the hospital's policies in the case of, you know, not an imminent medical emergency, but a pregnancy where, um, you know, an abortion might be needed because down the line, this is going to be a serious issue for your health. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. That was always something to consider, but it just, I'm, I'm really glad that I've Oh, I hate to say this because it, it feels selfish, but I'm glad that I've had my family and my children and I was able to um, exercise my rights or the, my, I guess my medical decisions were just my decisions and the decision of my partner and not who I am just feeling um, tremendously for the women who are approaching, you know, their fertile period or the period of their lives and they're trying to expand their family in a responsible and healthy way. It's just, it's asking a lot. Do you have advice for women who are going through the system right now, who might be newly pregnant, who might be trying to get pregnant, who might be trying to not get pregnant and not want to go to jail? Um, what practical advice do you have for women to keep their heads on straight right now? So I think the first thing, right, is make sure that you're with a provider that you trust and have these conversations about, well, what if something like this happens? What if I have an unwanted pregnancy? Or what if I have a pregnancy that is wanted but is risky? What would you do in those situations? If you couldn't help me, could you send me along to someone who would be able to help me? Um, so having those, those very frank, difficult conversations, um, I think now is, is a smart thing to do having a game plan for different contingencies, right? No matter what they are. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, marking that down for a quick sound bite. Um, what did we miss here, Pavel? I feel like we've hit, we've hit some of the more specific issues that women might notice changes in when it comes to their healthcare or it comes to um, the actual treatment they're receiving on the ground. Is there anything else we missed that you think is imperative for women to know um, after this ruling? Well, I think one thing that has not been hit on quite as much is to go back to this idea of the ripple effect, right? That it's not just about reproductive health care, that this is about um, women being able to participate in society, society, women having power in society. And when we look at the United States as a whole and how it treats women, so first of all, 
um, even before this, compared to other developing countries, the United States had a very high maternal mortality rate. Our healthcare, our maternal healthcare for women is poor compared to other developing countries. And in large part, it's because we do not prioritize it. We do not fund it. Um, little effort is made to make sure that women who are socioeconomically vulnerable, who are in remote communities, get the health care that they need during pregnancy. And so already that, that's a barrier, right? That was a barrier to women participating in society. When you look at maternity leave, same thing. The U.S. is so far behind other countries in terms of paid maternity leave. Um, and again, that impacts women's ability to participate in society. What we know is that in other countries where they have good paid maternity leave, women stay in the workforce after becoming mothers. There's a much higher participation rate. Women have, on average, higher incomes. The wage discrepancy between men and women isn't as extreme. Um, women reach positions of power at higher rates in other countries where there is maternal health care and paid maternal leave, right? They're getting to CEO positions. Um, they're running for office at much higher rates than women in the U.S. because they don't have to worry so much about, um, you know, well, what am I going to do when it's time to take leave for having a baby? Um, Am I going to be able to afford childcare? That's the other thing. Again, the U.S. lags behind other countries when it comes to childcare, and again, that has a huge impact on women's ability to participate in society. And so, even before this decision, women in the U.S. Um, right were just had far less equality um, than women in other developing countries. Right, women in the U.S are not in the workforce at the same rate, they're not making the same wages, they're not attaining positions of power, they're not holding political power. And it's in large part because they're saddled with this burden of motherhood. And I don't mean that in a, in, in a particularly negative way. I think motherhood is a wonderful thing, but someone has to provide the labor of child rearing. Um, and in other countries, they've offset that, that labor, they've helped women. The U.S. hasn't done that. And so already women didn't have equity. And so you add in this reversal of Roe and it's another barrier to equity. Yeah. Um, and that that to me is extremely frustrating um, because the U.S. already was so far behind other developed countries. And now we're taking another step back on that front. And, and again, this is not... I want to be clear. This is not, I'm not saying anything about, um, you know, this isn't about the question of, well, isn't a human life, right? It is simply a fact that with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, women's status in society, they're, they're going to be moving backward. And maybe you're okay with that if you think that, you know, a fetus is a human life, but it is not a costless decision, right? It, there are trade-offs there. Yeah. And so I just want to be very clear about that. I'm glad you were. And, and I'm I'm approaching this interview, hopefully with that same objectivity and, and the frustration that I'm expressing, even though I'm, I'm very open about my own personal stance, it's not being informed by my by where I stand on the issue of pro-choice versus pro-life. It's being informed by the very facts that you're giving us. And so I thought this interview was so important because you can um, 
sit on your philosophical laurels all day and talk about why you believe that your position is the superior one or any story or fact you have to support your position, that's fine. But the fact is there are objective changes that are going to happen as a result of this ruling. So I think it's important as women participating in society to understand the implications of our beliefs, the individual. It goes beyond how this might impact me and the healthcare decisions I make and how it impacts countless women who might not be at the same level of privilege that you might be. Uh, it's just so important. This part of the conversation is so important. So, you know, I'm glad you made that clarification because I, 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 I second that. Um, as we look at this issue and how it plays out over time, I think that it's important to say, you know, to talk about what you just called the ripple effect. So, I mean, hopefully we're providing people with this information and that, you know, it's it's hitting on that level. But I mean, yes, yes, big yes. How, I wondered as we were chatting, if there's a country who has similar um laws in place. And I, I'm using that term broadly. I understand every state will have different laws when it comes to abortion, mm -hmm. but who might be in a similar position to us and how that in turn impacted their, you know, economy, how it impacted their public policy toward women and women's health overall. There's been studies that have been done on countries that are in a similar situation to us currently, not the U.S. a month ago, but the U.S. now. And how did they look after those laws went into place? Well, actually, there are very few countries that have taken this sort of step backward. Um, most of the time, we're moving in the other direction. So, right, when we think about countries that still, well, so um, Ireland, right, very recently moved from abortion being illegal to legal. Um, so the U.S. is kind of an outlier in that sense. Most countries are being coming more progressive in terms of reproductive rights. The U.S. is moving backwards right now. So it's hard to know exactly, you know, what this step backward will do because we don't have a, a great point of comparison. But what we can do is look at other countries where abortion is still illegal. And to be honest, um, most of those are developing countries, not not developed countries like the US. So there's a difference there. But we can sort of think about, well, what impact does the um, illegality of abortion have in these other countries? And how might we see that in the US? And so when we're thinking about developing countries where abortion is still illegal, um, right, we're thinking mostly Latin American countries, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and what we see there is right, a lot of maternal deaths, high maternal death rate um, beyond what we would expect in a developing country. And we also just see high levels of gender inequity compared to other developing countries where abortion is illegal. So the U.S. is really in an unusual place right now, right? We're a developed country, most developed countries, abortion is legal. Um, we had a constitutional protection for abortion, it was legal, and now that's been rolled back. Most countries are moving in the other direction. So it's hard to say exactly what will happen, but you know, looking at other countries where abortion still is illegal and the effects of that, nothing, nothing good in terms of women's rights is likely to come of this. Hmm. 
Well, this has been pretty depressing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's no, a shipper. It's a... a moment of levity. No, listen, Pavio, the, the perspective and information you have to share is just so it's, it's very unique and it's very necessary right now. I think as we all move forward, like I said, we want to have an informed understanding of what this practically means for American women. And I, I really believe that we provided some of that today. I want to round things out by asking you, we touched on your advice before in choosing healthcare providers, but if you could just round things out for us by providing advice for women who want to continue to take the best care of themselves, their babies, the families they, they have, where do they start and why should we not lose hope that we are a priority in the system? Give us some positive notes. Well, I think one thing that's going to be really important is for women to work together um, on this and to realize that we have a mutual interest in making sure that women have reproductive rights, that they can participate in society, and so helping one another. I think there is so much to be said for that. Um, and coming together, so women, you know, if, if, if you have a friend, um, right, you can start it close to home, a friend or an acquaintance who's struggling, who's having um, a, a reproductive health crisis or a difficult time, talking to them, giving them resources that, you're, that you have that, that you can part with, right, um, helping them to get the care that they need. You can also think um, larger in scope. There are a lot of organizations um, that provide funds to low-income women who are in need of an abortion or maternal health care. Um, and if it's illegal in their state, they will give them the funds to get to another state. So you can donate there. That's another option. Um, but I think this attitude of we have to be in it together, right? And I know you asked specifically about taking care of yourself and your family and your children. Um, I think the way to do that is to make sure that women as a group are rising together and, and making sure that we are empowered as much as we can. Go and vote. I mean, absolutely, we have midterms coming up. Go and vote and, and vote with your interests as a woman in mind. I mean, women tend to not think so much about gender politics, actually. We know this when it comes to voting. That's mm -hmm. often not at the forefront of, of their minds. It's not what drives their decision making. But I think this is a moment in time where it needs to be, right? So go and vote for candidates who are pro-choice, right? Um, and make that your top priority, um, right? And be vocal about your beliefs. So I think it's, it's all about collective action in this mm -hmm. case, helping one another, um, taking small steps to make sure that women as a whole um, can rise up from this mm -hmm. and take our health back into our own hands. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Paviel Haynes, thank you so much for spending some time with me today on We Gotta Talk. Can you tell us about any upcoming projects or ways that we can connect with you? Um, absolutely. So I have a couple of different pieces of work happening. So right now I'm working on a book manuscript about how presidential candidates use patriotic rhetoric to shape American identity. Hopefully that'll be coming out within the next few months, fingers crossed. But so you can be on the lookout for that. 
Um, I also have a website, www.pavielhaines.com. That's P-A-V-I-E-L-L-E-H-A-I-N-E-S.com. And you can contact me there too. Shoot me an email if you have any questions or would just like to talk more about this. You have been such a delight to have on the podcast today. Paviel, thank you again. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of We Gotta Talk. If you don't mind, I would love if you could leave a rating and review. Those help this show to get out to people who might find it useful or entertaining. I'm so grateful for your support. Please follow on Instagram at Sunny Abada or check out our latest blog post at wegotatalk.com slash blog. See you next time. (laughs) 